Hello and welcome. I'm Elizabeth Turp, a counsellor, trainer and writer. And I'm Paul Gorns, a careers advisor, trainer and lecturer. And this is How We Care. Conversations about what it takes to help people for a living. We are two experienced and committed helping professionals who are passionate about finding the best ways to take care of the people we help through our work and to support helping professionals to take care of themselves. So if you're a counsellor, careers advisor, coach, social worker, medical professional, a learning and development or HR professional or any other skilled helper or aspire to be one, this podcast is for you. Let's reflect on how we care. Hello and welcome to episode 15 of How We Care. So today's episode is a special guest episode and we've got a colleague, Natalie Rodiel, on with me today. Um, when I say colleague, I mean in the profession rather than a direct colleague because I work in private practice, but I consider all fellow counsellors and therapists colleagues in the wider world. Um, so I've known Natalie for few years I think um, and, sh and maybe she'll tell us how we kind of got to know each other a little bit and the topic we're going to be talking about today is training and working as a helping professional when you have a chronic condition and Natalie has just really helpfully reminded me how much of an intersection this has with a previous episode that we've done which is actually the inspiration for this episode so episode 11 which was dealing with work and illness which we did a few months ago um, which was kind of generally coming out of more people finding that they're developing chronic conditions and how you might deal with that so this episode is kind of a, a more detailed and very much related extension of that um so i'm going to hand over to natalie now so she she's going to tell you a little bit about herself because another really good thing about this episode is we represent different stages in our careers but the reason that we get on when we're talking about work is very similar to the reason that me and podcast will get on is that we have a very similar level of passion for our work. And even though we might be doing different things in different settings, we have very complementary kind of ideas and conversations. So, Natalie, would you like to tell the listeners a bit about yourself? Yes. So thank you. As you know, I am Natalie and I recently completed some research um, with the topic of chronic health and creative expression because um, I experienced a chronic health diagnosis unexpectedly in my first week of training as a counsellor back at university. And so my experience throughout training was learning to manage that alongside assignments and my passion to become a counsellor. Um, and I'm pleased to tell you that I did manage to finish my degree um, and thankfully to Elizabeth, um, it was through her help because my dissertation on my research topic of chronic health and creative expression alongside person-centred experiential therapy, mm -hmm. um, I was directed to Elizabeth because she has experience with chronic health and being a counsellor herself. So um, I used some of her articles in my research and then we met up again to kind of review my dissertation once it was finished, which was a miracle. Um, and now I'm pleased to say I am finished and I'm counselling in schools. 
Wonderful. And now the listeners can understand a bit more about why I find you really inspiring. (laughs) Because you managed to achieve all of that whilst living with the topic of this episode, you know, which is like amazing in itself. And I'm sure there'll be lots that we can talk about around that in this episode. Because that's, you know, okay, so I'll I'll tell you a little bit about my journey with career and chronic illness, which is slightly different but obviously has its own challenges so I've always had some level of chronic health problem but the main one was undiagnosed um, Mm. for many many years but when I was in my first proper counselling job which was in the NHS I became very very unwell Um, and I don't think I've been there very long I'm not very good with timelines but I think I'd only been there maybe four four or five years Um, and I got very very sick I was off sick for a big chunk of time several months um and i with the support of my manager which we're sure we will touch on was able to return there part-time and kind of continue learning how to manage my health issues and then year, a few years later i got sick with a, another really serious chronic health problem while i was there so i had to navigate all that and then eventually i left that job not just for my health but many other reasons which I've touched on in previous episodes and then went to work for myself in private practice which I now have been doing for 10 years so there's lots there that I've experienced when I was actually training I my health problems were minimal so I wouldn't say that they were kind of a barrier there but they have certainly threatened my career throughout my career I've been doing this work for 25 years. So there's been several points where I've thought I'm probably not going to be able to work again. And so having to sort of find a way through that and kind of get the support that you have to get has been essential. So we will touch more on that. But shall I kind of maybe carry on with that theme and then let you kind of come into it a bit? So a a lot of it has got to be around how you manage to kind of assert and communicate where you're up to and what support you can get and that's very dependent not just on you yourself and your own comfort level with talking about these things but also the person that you're communicating with so Mm -hmm. what manager you've got who your tutor is who you know what the organization's policies are all of those types of things and as a counsellor specialising with working with people with chronic conditions, the, the majority of people that I'm working with who have some kind of employment-related issue have a bad experience. They have they either have a good manager, but an organisation whose policies are either non-existent or not implemented legally. They, they, people are often fighting, literally fighting, using all their energy that they don't have to get their most basic needs met and the base, most basic support and um, and when i when i hear of an organization that does it well I mean, i'm like so shocked because it's so rare so <laughs> that's kind of the background so i think i was fairly lucky in the nhs because i had a really good manager when i first became sick and although she didn't understand what i was going through she was very open to me educate i mean that you'll laugh like this Natalie this is like this is the life of a person with chronic illness having to constantly educate not just managers but doctors and (laughs) consultants and Mm -hmm. health and everyone that's part of our our job in life isn't it to educate people who should already know these things anyway my management shouldn't be our job but it really shouldn't unfortunately 
horrible. It's really tiring. It's really emotional. It's very upsetting. But she was she was brilliant, and she did listen to me, and she did support me to do what I needed to do to stay in work and all of that. So, what does that kind of trigger for you? So, does that you know mm. bring up a lot of stuff? I'm sure. Lots. Yes, and I'm glad you touched on your experience because I'll go back to kind of when I was diagnosed because that was during training. Mm-hmm. I was at university so I was really excited because um the types of jobs I've always done have been helping professionals um and so I'd gone really specific to want to become a counsellor learning kind of the skills I need and what I love about counselling myself like I'd had counselling myself previously so I'd seen mm-hmm. how helpful it can be and, and the beauty that can come out of counselling um so when I was diagnosed and especially in the first week of my degree it was like thoughts of how on earth am I going to get through a degree when I've just been given like a heavy diagnosis? Um, But you touched on support. And I think that's something that really has got me through to this day, which linked to my dissertation, one of my um, findings, which really helped me to kind of get through um, was the support of my tutors. I remember Mm -hmm. having meetings with them and keeping in touch with them regularly, even if I felt kind of quite low um, and they were the ones to really remind me about options such as extensions with assignments extensions with placement hours because mm-hmm. um, I know that for me in the workplace there can be a culture in certain careers of target driven and there's always mm. that ability to meet deadlines so I'd learned that was a really strong thought for me so thankfully because of my tutors it was them helping me process and Mm. in accessing my own private therapy thankfully on my degree we have mm. a private therapist approved list so you know you've got safe and ethical counsellors mm. to contact it was through them um my supervisor was incredibly supportive um my placement like I knew to communicate to them when I started mm-hmm. about my health issue and um they were incredibly supportive as well so thankfully similar to you like I'd had a good experience because they were really kind and understood and weren't pushing me past my limits Um, and so I remember at uni as well learning about support groups so it was like being a counsellor or being a helping professional or having chronic health all these themes we're touching on it it's who is in your support group kept coming back to me so having that space to explore who's in my support group like it was a physical diagram kind of we drew of a circle of people so Mm -hmm. that really helped me when I felt lonely or I wanted to withdraw um or felt like I couldn't achieve my degree it was going to all these people I had yeah they could sort of bring you back up because I, yeah. I mean you brought you've mentioned something really important there and that is the mental health impact of living with chronic illness yeah and you know true. that at times it's so difficult to just keep going physically that you yeah. know you you can you know really go downhill and sometimes to a very dark place mentally Definitely. and then it's much harder then to assert what you need isn't it yeah definitely that that was a massive thing for me it was learning to speak up and, and that it was okay to ask for help I think I think I can say for me but I feel like with helping professionals like we are the ones to go and help others mm. but a big learning for me was it's about giving myself that same help and that same support absolutely massive yeah that's so important so that leads to like a really important thing that I wanted to touch on in this episode which is that journey that anyone who is 
kind of finding themselves in this situation recently or has not managed to get to a good place with managing their health issues is kind of there's so much work we have to do on ourselves to move from being the person who looks after everyone else which helping professionals often are that you know that actually came up in my master's research because I did a dissertation on self-care counsellors and self-care yeah and, and you know and all the literature that I looked at for that kind of shows that you know no one listening to this will be surprised usually not the greatest at that <laughs> so yeah. if, if you add in chronic illness to the mix basically I personally feel I don't know what you think about this but I personally feel that if you do not amend that in yourself you you will not be able to continue I, I also I will say that I think that's the case whether you have a chronic condition or not because doing therapy and counseling is extremely demanding and if you are not able to learn to look after yourself or value yourself enough to do that then you can burn out quite easily so that's like everybody everybody needs to do that but I think when you've got a chronic condition you have to find a place for that condition in everything that you do and sort of build in a you know a self-care routine and now we have also done quite a few episodes on practitioner self-care on the podcast um, and I often get involved in online discussions about self-care because people find it very difficult don't they because they're very busy or they just don't know how to do it or it makes them feel uncomfortable or they think it's like a frivolous thing that you shouldn't be Mm. doing and I always just say well it's actually the most important thing this might sound really awful to listeners but it's true like to me it's the first thing so like my diary is based around my needs and that sounds terribly self-absorbed but it's actually designed so that not only can I maintain enough health to work but also so that I can be well enough to help people and to do my job so it's not just a selfish thing it obviously has a big knock-on effect for my clients because if I'm like you know really unwell then I'm not likely to be able to do the work to a good enough standard and so you know I don't want to be if I can help it struggling with that I mean obviously there's times where health dips and you have to take some time out or you know you can't always control that but if you can find a way to have a baseline of good healthful practices which will be different for everyone by the way and people can revisit the other episodes when they want to find out about what that might look like but for me it's down it goes even as far as having big chunks of time in my week where there's literally nothing in my diary. And when I say there's nothing, it doesn't mean there's a space that I'm going to fill with other things. It's literally a space and it stays a space. And I don't think many people do that. And I know that because I talk to people about whether they do that and they just don't do it. Because it's not a thing we do in this culture because it's supposed to be constantly busy and constantly producing and all that. So it's actually quite kind of counter to the culture that we live in to do that. What do you think about that? massively um I know like especially on social media it's like um I think I've seen a few good quotes where you're celebrated for doing some massive massive projects and whilst that is very inspiring it's I think I read something that like rest is seen as not celebratory it's like complete opposite Mm. counterculture like what you're saying like nobody's Mm -hmm. celebrated for rest Mm -hmm. um that's not seen as an achievement um, which is for me in my training was my biggest achievement because I think that was lowest mm. on my priority list yeah, before yeah. training and before what I learned and, and you touched on self-care and I say to everyone people ask me what did I learn from my training and my degree and it was it was not 
to become a profession and a skill whilst I have it was more to look after me and mm. yeah to mm-hmm. put my needs first before and to enable me to look after the needs of others yes yeah to have that baseline do you know I just want to go back to what you said before because there was so much in it but I it was so lovely listening to you talk about the way that your tutors were actually telling you what you were entitled to and it's it's like I've not heard that much before so they were actually modeling to you that it's okay for a person to ask for help and it's okay for a person to do things in a different way if that's what it takes for them to achieve the goal and and I remember when I was doing my because I as I said didn't have chronic health problems that got in the way of my training but I did have the tension that you know when you do all the personal development groups and all of that and obviously we're all working through our issues when we're training as therapists aren't we I was very aware of the tension between trying to impress the tutors and pass the course <laughs> and being 100% honest with our vulnerabilities <laughs> like oh, and I, I actually, that's probably why I did the topic that I did because it's it's not they're contradictory things sometimes, aren't they? <laughs> yeah, that that similar for me. It's a conflict because you have a grade to pass. You have yeah. a number where you are literally using the words pass or fail. Yeah. But yeah, but yeah it's about process. It's been about open. It's been about vulnerable. It's about theory. <laughs> There's so yeah. much in it. Yeah, yeah. I, I just yeah, it was really such a challenge and I think I think we have the same challenge so now maybe we should sort of move on to talking about employment now where unlike being on a counselling course you would hope that the tutors had an awareness of equality they don't always obviously but you'd hope that there was an environment of support accessibility equality and all of that in various different organisations that we might work in you don't necessarily get that and like I was working in an NHS primary care mental health service and I was being told things from much higher up by the way the NHS generally and its pressures you know once I was told oh well if you have another operation then you're going to lose your job that was that was one of the final straws by the way but the organization was not able you know not blaming any individuals who might be listening here who know me from that time (laughs) and the organization's pressures were such that my manager felt the need to say that to me when I was just about to be cut open once again and, and like go through a really traumatic time and they, know, and they knew what I'd already been through and that's what they said to me and I was like it was one of those moments where you know we, I think we're quite similar we like to talk don't we Natalie so <laughs> I could not speak I could not I had nothing I had nothing to give from that I, I, I nearly fell off the chair I couldn't speak about it it was yeah it was awful that Um, speaks volumes in itself yeah absolutely so it was very very bad (laughs) yeah so they didn't they weren't able to basically weren't able to at the end make any adaptations support individualization or you know I already had a lot by the way so I was already working part-time I was already working in a different way so I, I was um ever since I returned to that job after being off for a good chunk of time, I was able to see my clients with bigger gaps between. I was a, I was allowed to work in one venue rather than several venues, which most people travel between venues in that service. So they did make a lot of um, re- the called reasonable adjustments. I'm sure. Well, if you're listening and you're not aware of the Equality Act and disability law, 
we should touch on this stuff again briefly. But so that under that, we ha- we all have the right to consideration of reasonable adjustments to our working life. And this is much more of a hot topic now than it's ever been since the pandemic, because people who've been working at home and have basically proven that it's possible to do many, many jobs like the jobs we do from home. Whereas before we were told, oh, you can't do that. That's not possible. You know, now they can't say that anymore. But I'm still hearing employers who've got really seriously chronically ill clients and staff rather trying to get them to go back to the office where actually if they do go back to the office, it could really seriously cause a relapse or, you know, compromise their physical health. And so there's a lot of fight having to happen around that. So what comes up for you when you think about, you know, reasonable adjustments or different ways Mm. of doing things? Yeah, I'm glad you touched on um, how my teachers were, thankfully, really Mm. kind and really supportive and we're okay with making adjustments and kind of letting me know my options um because yeah I think general workplace culture our own experiences alone but general workplace culture like there was still is kind of a culture about sickness um and time off even if it's not spoken there's there's, there can be an atmosphere Mm. um so for me again slightly going back to training but now it's relevant to my workplace it's I did need to learn my rights. Like, thankfully, um, I had some healthcare professionals that taught me about my rights, that taught mm-hmm. me about reasonable adjustments, which I didn't really know about. Um, mm. So it was learning all of that. Um, and again, it, it's it's knowing it, but I think it's another thing to speak up because for mm. me, it was mm-hmm. tough to put that into place. Um, yeah. Because for me... I've really had to learn to slow down and pace myself, which is a phrase mm. you taught me about, which is probably a whole other topic we could touch on. Oh, at some absolutely. Point. It's huge. But yeah, I think I would add that it's it's knowing reasonable distance. And I'm glad you've told people about it because I would have been the person to not know. Mm. But it's actually speaking up and then whether whether your manager will support that or not, um, or whether there will be tension in that relationship as mm. well, because that can happen. Yeah, absolutely. And a thing that I, when I was thinking about doing this recording today, I, I reminded myself of the other thing which some workplaces have, which is a union. So if you're in a workplace situation where there is a union, even though this is kind of falling out of favour generally in the world, please join the union. Even if you're listening and you haven't got a, an issue right now with employers, it's actually quite important that you join the union ahead of needing them because I think there's a period of time where you can't actually get support. You know, you can't just join to get support. You have to have been in it for a while. But, you know, when I was in the NHS, the union rep was invaluable in supporting me to learn and, and get to that point that we're talking about where, you know, I had to educate myself about the law so that I could go into meetings and tell them what they should be doing for me, which, again, like we said earlier, is appalling. But I had the support of the union at various points which is just wonderful i mean yeah any anyone anybody who has got that you know and some workplaces i'm finding now talking to multiple people that sometimes people don't know there's a union that they can join in their workplace so sometimes it's actually worth finding out if that is the case and then just join because you might need it you know and then it's not all on you you've got the backup of someone who can you know has got knowledge and power and can kind of support you because another thing is it's very hard to fight all this stuff especially when you're either in a relapse crisis or a new 
health challenge, isn't it? It's all it's a, it's all very well when you're in a place where you're kind of managing and you know things are fairly stable for you, even if they're hard. If you're in a really difficult phase of illness, or you know you've got a new illness coming up, it's honestly I just I don't even want to remember how bad that has mm. been at points. It's just exhausting, and it's and it's another thing that you just don't need, isn't it? Really, yeah. No. And like the point you're making, that's why getting unions or um, occupational health. Um, yes. can be supportive as well and uh-huh. again because it's not your line manager it's like a neutral person um that's something really practical um and mm-hmm. for me I actually learned um I think people often think go to the GP when you're sick which yes of course do that um but I learned um counsellors as well can mm-hmm. actually provide letters if the client requests so it'd be the person's yes. choice of course um, yeah. So it's not just the GP, but it's counsellors and mental health professionals yeah. um, can provide letters of support mm-hmm. as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I actually do that for my clients now. And, and because, I think because I was in the NHS, that was quite normal. So my job in the NHS originally was slightly different and, and I was GP liaison stuff was was like normal. So I learned how to do that kind of letter in that setting. And now if, if I have a client who's really having a tough time and they ask me to do a letter boy do I do a letter because that's one of my <laughs> yeah. favorite things to do is yeah. to basically just lay it all out and, and it's hilarious as well. it's the only time I ever get all my qualifications out and write them on something <laughs> in a really long line yeah. just to you know because you've got to kind it's of use what, you, what, you've, what you've got at that point yeah. but yeah I'm glad you mentioned occupational health because the other thing that I have found invaluable is the occupational health doctor system which is is a thing in all organisations, whether it's outsourced or in-house occupational health, is that, that you know, there's always going to be, if you get referred to or you or request it, you can have a meeting with a GP specialist who is independent of the organisation and mm-hmm. they will have a meeting with you and their job is basically to protect you. So if your employer is trying to make you do something that isn't helpful or refusing to support you, they can actually make recommendations. So if somebody's off sick and they're doing a phased return, they can dictate the phased return terms. They, they have so much power. You know, doctors have a lot of power, obviously, don't they? And so like the experiences I've had and pretty much everyone I've ever sort of suggested do, do that has been positive because those doctors are not aligned with the organisation. They're actually employed like on a freelance basis so they're not Mm. even attached to an EAP or whoever and that yeah that can be so good because they've got the the clout you know you're you're telling them and they listen to what you're telling them but they also know the law and they can really go right well this isn't okay and you need to be doing this and not saying that employers will always follow it but a lot of time they do because who doesn't listen to the authority of a doctor
Okay, so we're going to talk in a little bit more detail about the, the golden tool, really, which is pacing, which is, I mean, it's interesting the, the way you've talked already on the podcast about how some of these ideas you just didn't really know about. And I think it's glad that you've, I'm glad you've said that because that, you know, it shows how these things are kind of outside mainstream knowledge, doesn't it? And um, so my journey with pacing is, you know, like everyone else, I guess I had to learn how to do it but I had to learn to do it like in a more urgent manner I guess than other people because one of the illnesses I had years ago was ME chronic fatigue syndrome where basically if you don't learn to kind of pace your energy you just have massive crashes and then you just can't you can't have any consistency of activity you know I'm not suggesting that's easy or anything or need to get into details about it now but it is kind of a fundamental skill and in the show notes I will be putting a link to my really really long resource on pacing which has got all the knowledge that I've like amassed over the years about how to do pacing well so if anyone listening wants to learn a bit more about that and like everything else in anything it's got to be highly individualized everybody's different everybody's blocks there's a lot of things in that article about blocks to pacing and a lot of those blocks are things like what we think about the idea of like you hinted at before Natalie rest you know what Mm -hmm. our ideas are about doing things in a different way you know are we prepared to put ourselves into decisions you know all of those things have to be like attended to almost before you are able to pace so I'm going to put you on the spot here a little bit. If you had to kind of define pacing as someone who's learning how to do it and, you know, what would your understanding of it be, do you think? I think you were the first person to tell me the word. And I think it was you that I had a conversation with. I'm laughing at me. I'm like, oh, what you didn't know back then. Um, <laughs> I was like, what's pacing? I didn't know mm-hmm. what it meant. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and so a really practical one would be like, you've got a load of house chores to do. Um but you're not going to do them all day long. You'll put some laundry on, have a rest, sit down, mm-hmm, have mm-hmm. a cup of tea, whatever you do for rest, and then kind of go back and do it in mm-hmm. breaks and periods of time. You wouldn't just go all day long doing whatever it is that you do. Mm-hmm. Pushing and pushing and pushing until you crash. Yes. Yeah, yes. and that, and I think that in a nutshell is a really good kind of descriptor of the difference between a healthy person without a chronic condition and many many chronic illnesses isn't it that in with chronic illness you can do that at certain stages but you will pay for that um whereas a healthy fit person can just do that multiple days in a row and then maybe be a bit tired at the weekend but if you've got a serious chronic illness especially one that has fatigue as a big symptom which most of them do let's be honest it, that will ruin you behaving like that. So if you can learn to do some of the things you've just really well described there, which is just, yeah, doing things. It's not that you can't necessarily do the things, but it's that you will do them in a very different way. And I'm glad you've used the example of a house situation there, domestic situation, because that is a good place to learn pacing. But what I always try and do on this podcast is acknowledge the level of privilege inherent in some things that we talk about. So you are now employed in an organisation. I have been employed in an organisation. I now work for myself. So I now, I am the best boss because I value me. I'm, I'm the only employee. I can set the rules. I can make my workload. I can tweak my workload. I can do what I want to do, right? 
that's very different from the average person working in an organisation. So I think we should touch on the challenges of pacing when you work within a structure that is not in your own control. <laughs> so that's a tough one, isn't it? So what, what does that kind of bring up for you, do you think? Oh, yes. Lots of learning. I speak from a healed place. Mm. Um, yeah, I was that person that would just push you all the time and thought it was fun. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I'd say if you are an employee, which is including with me, I have learned through others as well. I had a colleague who specializes in well-being and it was thankfully to them. Um, in fact, a couple of colleagues, really. Um, I remember I used to try and answer all my text messages on my mm. lunch break. So um, I think I touch on household chores because that's outside of your job. And then like your phone, that's a whole nother topic. Yeah. Um, answering personal emails, answering personal texts, personal phone calls. Um, and I remember spending my 30 minute break, which um, I, I, yeah, I wish we could go back to like a, a one hour lunch break. Obviously, that's a place of privilege. Mm. I mm-hmm. don't know. Maybe it could happen one day. Mm-hmm. Um but yeah, 30 minutes isn't really enough. Mm. And then I was using my humble 30 minutes um, to try and answer all my like 30 WhatsApp messages. Wow. And it was thankfully my friend and colleague turned around and said, what, what are you doing? You're on your break. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was like, but all these people are texting. And I guess the helper in me wanted to respond to them. And she was like, put your phone down. She was like, eat your lunch. It's your break. Mm. And that that was a good few years ago. And honestly, like, Yes, I try and respond to my texts when I can, but I've I've never gone back from that. I think perhaps the crash of trying to push through and answer texts and answer phones and personal yeah, emails and yeah. household chores, perhaps it all kind of mm. was a revelation. And yeah, now um, I know as an employee, like when I'm at work, I try my best not to look at my phone in the day as mm-hmm. much as I can, mm-hmm. particularly in the mornings, because I've learned that's my time when I'm kind of work mode I'm focused especially as a counsellor okay yeah other helping professional um, roles would need to kind of have space to be grounded and kind of calm in a few minutes um before perhaps seeing a client um so it's practical things like that mm. um and I, I mean I'm going off on a tangent here with the phone because it's just such a huge topic but I I've turned my notifications off wonderful yeah because I've learned it makes me really anxious mm-hmm. and I know with chronic health linking back to that that can add to kind of that can cause flare-ups and pain and make our symptoms worse and it, it make the fatigue more challenging yeah so what you're talking about there is really great because you're talking about boundaries aren't you you're talking mm. about the boundaries that you learn as a counsellor in order to manage the actual work but you're then bringing them into your wider life by going okay this yeah. is the time I do this and this is the time I do that. And then having really strong barriers between those things. And in yeah, and in doing that, it allows you to pace yourself because there's not so many things coming at you. And I think, you know, it's hard to find a person nowadays who isn't struggling to manage their phone. And, and like, you know, it's just a nightmare, whether it's personal or, you know, or it's work related or whatever it is, it's always there, isn't it? So everybody's trying to learn how to do this differently. And so, yeah, turning your notifications off, it's wonderful, isn't it? Because it's you yeah. taking control and saying, okay, I'll look at that when it fits in with me and what I need to be doing. Yeah, I think that's really, yeah, really good. So there's a lot in, in that just little snippet of what pacing means. And and what you were saying before about managing 
tasks and you know breaking things down you know if you've got like this is and I'll give you an extreme example when I was really 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 sick and I could barely stand up right so if I wanted to do the washing up um and I felt like I wanted to take some part in the household chores because I couldn't do much I would do the washing up but I got to the point of allowing myself and I'm saying that deliberately to do the washing up in more than one chunk now that that's really sad and you know even thinking about it upsets me a little bit but that is actually something that helped me to manage my health when it was at a really bad state so instead of standing up for like 20 minutes or whatever it might take i would do 10 minutes i would go and sit down have a rest and then i would go back and but it took me a really long time to get to the place where i would that would ex- be acceptable to me to do it you know so there's something in there about having to completely change your own expectations of yourself or the little voice which i'm sure some people listening have got a voice going what does she mean she couldn't stand up for 20 minutes to do the washing up which the voice was in me and i was the one who couldn't stand up so like you know there's a judgment there it's like well you must be able to stand up just stand up and i could have stood up for those 20 minutes but then i would have been in pain I would have been exhausted. I would have felt much, much rougher than I already felt, which was fairly rough. You know, it's all of that adaptation and kind of the goal is still getting achieved like you've achieved your qualification, but it, it is achieved in a different way. And, it, and, and I think this is kind of, you know, this is such an important topic. Like now it's at least being talked about more in society with not just chronic illness stuff, but also neurodiversity and all kinds of things where we realise that everybody is different. And just because we've always done a thing in a certain way or convention says we do a certain thing, doesn't mean we have to do it that way. If we can reach the goal in a different way, we have the skills, the intelligence, the training, the capability, and we have to do it in a different way and we still reach the goal. So what? Who cares? You know, unless we're literally damaging someone or putting someone at risk, obviously that's not going to help but if you can do the thing in an okay way then really we should be supported to do that so it's really good to hear that you had that support on your training what do you think a person who didn't have that support on their training for whatever you know because there's people listening to this who are training in other professions you know that may be not as hot on this type of thing i'm wondering you know I, i'm not sure if i have an answer but what what would you, what could you do, do you think, if you were training as a health and professional but you weren't getting any any of this kind of support from somebody else? Yeah, I think it's a really important question to explore because kind of I'm coming at it from I had incredible support, but mm. it's I, I think of people who didn't get that support. I, I do think mm-hmm. of that a lot and how much like I probably wouldn't have finished my degree if I didn't have the right support because yeah yeah the amount of times I wanted to quit because the workload alone Mm -hmm. of training is a lot whether you're um someone with chronic health or not like that is a lot in itself Mm -hmm. um so I would say to the people who aren't getting the support is kind of find the places that will get support so I think we touched on and there can be unions as well Mm -hmm. um for people on placement um at your training provider there is there should be a placement 
um staff member there yeah yeah if your placement are kind of pushing your workload too much Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. um your personal tutors as well hopefully they should be supportive but like yeah yeah i guess student Um, services maybe if there isn't the direct support there's like higher up services in the university and i'm thinking about in employment then you you know I, i i've gone to hr over these types of things not not over my boss's head. I didn't have to go that far, but I I did tell them that I needed to do that. Yeah. So you know there are. I, I think sometimes you have to work quite hard to find the person who's going to help you, and it, and it is worth it because we are actually talking about legal stuff here. You know, like if they're not providing support, it it might be hard to get this through. But they are actually breaking the law, so. It's kind of important, isn't it? Yeah. And I think people, perhaps I've heard people have had bad experiences with HR. I'm not saying Mm. they all are bad at all, not Mm -hmm. for a minute. But I think that's the unknown um, truth of HR is they are there to support the employee Mm. um, Mm -hmm. if you are having issues. But so you touch on HR, which, yeah, definitely go to them. Um, Someone I didn't know about, somebody told me about is ACAS. So ACAS. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, You can literally just Google them. They are incredible. I've gone to them for years for advice and support. Uh And again, they're neutral, they're confidential, but like what you're touching on, Elizabeth, like it is the law, like it does come into legalities. Mm -hmm. Um, So they can give really incredible advice and support. And if you're not sure of who can get you the support, they they know lots of organisations. Yeah, they'll guide you. As Brilliant. Thanks so much for that. That's really useful. Yeah, because if you're literally stuck and you just think, I can't do it, I'm going to give up, then going to an external independent organization for that help might crack yeah. it. You might be able to find that person. So the other related topic, which is completely relevant to this, is supervision. So in our profession, you know, obviously other counsellors listening will know that in counselling and psychotherapy, we have supervision once a month. So as a person working in private practice, I've made it my business to have supervisors. The last three supervisors I've had over many, many years have been either people with expertise and experience working with chronic illness or people who have chronic illness themselves. So I have found that to be invaluable. So I deliberately seek out supervisors who say that as if I've got one and you one all the time. I don't. I've had each one for like six or seven years each, you know. But it's been wonderful because you're working with someone who gets it. Like, and again, I'm saying, the privilege of being private practice is that I choose my own supervisor. I appreciate if you're in an organisation or if you're in a different profession. A lot of helping professions don't have supervision in the same way. So if you don't have that, you could maybe seek out a mentor or somebody, you know, other in the organisation who is dealing with the same type of issues who can kind of give you that support. And and like you've said, it's like that support system that you drew out that time and realised you then could kind of, rely on them to help you with strength that you sometimes need support to to find to keep going didn't you and so yeah in our profession to have a supervisor I mean it's interesting I could kind of track where I'm up to with my health if I wanted to by the amount of time and supervision I have to spend talking about my health you know and in in terms of you know not again not for like self-indulgent reasons or even about myself it would be more about where's my caseload up to 
what are my kind of urges regarding taking on more new exciting clients? You know, my supervisor knows me now, so she'll pull a face when when she can see that I'm getting above myself and trying to think, oh, I'll do this and do that, when she knows very well that I've already told her this is my limit. So she she acts as an enforcer. I've told her this is my current maximum limit of clients that is actually good for my well-being. So if I start creeping above it, she'll be like, right, well, you've told me not to. You don't want to do that. So, you know, it's that. It's like help using other people. You know, and my partner does that for me. I don't know about you, but my partner like knows what I need and what I don't need or you know, can tell when something's like not, not quite right. So, you know, close friends can do that as well, maybe sometimes, or family members. You know, you can kind of ask them. You can literally ask them, if you notice this happening, just say something to me because then it's you know because we all we all have multiple drivers don't we like obviously we need to earn money and we love our work and we want to do this and we want to do that so sometimes we can fall a little bit into old habits <laughs> and we need to be pulled back you know so that's yeah for me supervision is a key I don't know about your experience with that side of it massively like I was about to say yeah your supervisor can offer support as well if you're not getting supported during your training or workplace mm-hmm. um, another person that um topic of the day can write a letter which is very valid and very needed mm. um, but I'd say yeah that's something I um when I first met my supervisor when I was training um I actually said can we put on my supervision gender um that I get to create myself um which was to check on my self-care as a topic mm-hmm. and to check on um, pacing and my health. Yeah. Um, and again, yeah, similarly, I do, I do, it's a really lovely part of supervision that we can check that out. And it, if I'm kind of like, no, I'm fine, I can do it all. They're like, mm. <laughs> they do, they learn your limits. And yeah, yeah. my counsellor does as well, which surprised wonderful. me. No, it's it was wonderful. really good. It was a really beautiful aspect of therapy. It's like, um, even from previously, it's like, so it's I think those people who kind of learn yeah. how you are and learn your limits, they can kind of gently challenge you, which is very needed because yeah. it's to protect you and keep you safe and ethical. So. I love that because all they're doing is reflecting back what you've told them anyway. So, mm-hmm. they, you know, they're not telling you what to do. Are they? They're telling no. you what, what you've quite clearly told them already. So there's, yeah, there is a beauty in that, isn't there? There's that yes. like, like real human <laughs> care and reciprocity of, of that. And yeah, that is really good. I love that. Yeah. Yeah. So you mentioned that there was one other area that was kind of relevant to this about your life post-uni that you might want to touch on didn't you yes thank you for reminding me um I would say to kind of stem off what you were just saying as well I think I've talked a lot today and kind of oh yeah I just have my phone on notifications off and I just you know I pace myself now and it it might sound like I live a very zend out life now but I agree with you like I read this quote in a magazine it was so helpful and it said that self-care is a journey um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so that is really strong for me. So I think just the art in itself of not mentally beating yourself up over, oh, you might have pushed yourself too hard one day is also key to self-care, I would argue, because it's about kind of the mental aspect mm. as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so I wanted to share that because, yeah, I think since finishing my degree, linking to um, pacing and how I am now and it being a journey, like I think 
I got on such an adrenaline high of mm-hmm, like, mm-hmm. oh, look at me, like I'm qualified now, like I've mm. finished my degree, look how much I can achieve. Very understandable. Um, right. Well, <laughs> but I, I think um, I learned and I explored through therapy since that um, that wasn't always healthy because then I felt mm. like I want, like I am very passionate and I really do want to bring a lot of change in many workplaces. Like mm. I would argue that everybody needs supervision so that's something mm-hmm. that's a dream of mine um but actually it was my dissertation supervisor that helped me a lot and she was like yeah but is it worth your life and your health if you bring all these changes and try and change policy but actually you're just mm. exhausted and make yourself more unwell mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so since my degree I have a few projects that I'm kind of exploring to get more counselling for chronic health and Mm -hmm. general well-being support in the workplace um but I've had to put them on hold which has been really tough for me because I think well one I would say to anyone training like my goodness the crash after uni I felt Mm -hmm. um was a lot so I would warn you of that because I think as much as my tutors tried to prepare me and they were really sweet to put in self-care and warn me like I think all kind of the year after I yeah I really felt that and I really kind of was in recovery from the exhaustion of kind of Mm. finishing a qualification um and so I then wanted to go on and do lots of exciting projects but actually like we've touched on like we need money and obviously we need jobs yeah so I would say kind of part of my pacing is the the projects that I wanted to do I have met with some teams which has been really exciting and in in some health professionals who are on board with kind of the counseling aspect Mm -hmm. needed for chronic health the mental health aspects of chronic health um because people healthcare professionals they mean well but they can be so focused on fixing the physical health yeah it's it, it seemed in my experience that the mental health was quite forgotten and not acknowledged as much um, and so, yeah, my dissertation topic, which was chronic health and creative expression and person-centered experiential counselling, um, it is uh, a project that is growing, mm. but pacing myself as well. So I'm looking into seeing how I can get that implemented, speaking to organisations. I love it. Um, so, yeah, that's something I'm doing. Mm, that's very sure exciting. I me. Yeah. yeah so yeah so you're trying to keep both of those things in balance and and like living living what you've learned and everything else and and it's something throughout what you've just said there about accepting where you're up to in all of this and everything we've talked about today is key I mean you know this is a whole other topic again for <laughs> chronic illness stuff isn't it but I found that it's only when you accept where you are that you can actually do the learning and make the changes. I mean, and that's, yeah, it's too complex to get into now, but you know, where we are is reality. Like wanting to be different doesn't change it and fighting it certainly doesn't change it actually makes it worse. So you're able to say, okay, I had all these big ideas and they're fabulous, but actually I've just literally just finished a qualification. Now I've started working. I just need to step, take a little step back with these big ideas and you know, it'll be okay. And there's something in there about trusting that you will get there. I mean, you've got the, such a passion for it and I'm really excited to see what you get up to with it all and maybe be slightly involved in it, you know, whatever, because I'm similarly passionate about it. But, but yeah, it's really good to hear that you're able to just go, okay, well, that's not for right now. 
I'll just do small steps because you know you're not doing nothing you're doing small steps but you're oh. not trying to do it all all at once <laughs> because that is surely the route to a massive crash and it's not a great route for anyone as I sort of hinted at earlier if you're a therapist or a health professional with a demanding role who has no health problems now if you're going to carry on like that you could develop some kind of a problem or burnout or something so all of this stuff isn't just specific to chronic illness I think but obviously it makes it a lot more urgent when you're actually living with a condition that you know I mean the kind of illnesses that I specialize in quite have a quite a high rate of people not being able to work at all the level of severity that we're talking about and so to be able to find a way to manage yourself and to you know it's so multifaceted it's not certainly again can't really describe it here it's not just one thing but it's learning to get to a good enough place where you can do something you know I only work part-time I mean that that is my kind of level that I've arrived at and I'm absolutely happy with that you know I, I managed to kind of make a life that works for me so that most of the time even when I'm really not very well or in a lot of pain or I've got a flare the people I'm working with don't know that and that the case that's the case because I've got enough flexibility and balance in the rest of my life that I can kind of ride it and, sh- and shift things around and stuff like that. And that's highly complex. And it takes time to get to that, doesn't it? Because it is multifaceted and it is completely individual. And like we've touched on multiple times in this session today, it is something that only is completely individual to each of us like you know nobody could ask us well how am I going to get to that you'd have to spend so much time getting to I mean I guess that's what I do with some of my clients it's it's like learning what 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 is all the things that are part of the picture for them and then helping them to get to it it's not like a list of things that you have to do you know so it's very nuanced isn't it and uh, and your work is about moving towards making the the more provision for that support as well yeah wow okay so I feel like we've covered a lot in this session and I've actually been inspired so before I say that is there anything else you wanted to touch on or do you feel like we've covered what you wanted to do in the session today Mm, I think it was really important what you said and I wanted to kind of touch on that just to Mm -hmm. emphasize um because yeah our part of it is quite targeted at people with chronic health or were touching on that subject but I would argue like whether you have chronic health or whether you don't have any health issues that you know of and you seem to be a fit and healthy person like I cannot emphasize the importance of pacing enough like just for anxiety alone and people's Mm -hmm. own Mm -hmm. mental health and their jobs like like you've touched on and I've been learning about that in supervision about blocking out time in diaries and mm-hmm. not having to be at every single life event for everybody yeah um because actually um you can only do the best helping type of job you do from coming from a place of rest yes I've learned that yeah yeah and being a helper by definition often means you have a history and a role in your family of being the one that puts everyone else before yourself so yeah I'm glad you've kind of come back around to that at the end because that is so important and it's kind of a you know a mission of this whole podcast is about self-care well-being for practitioners and like if anyone hasn't listened to any of the episodes if you go back over the whole 14 previous episodes, I'd say off the top of my head, at least half of them are directly about that topic. 
and every other one has that running through it because we're just so passionate about it. <laughs> so I have been inspired. So we normally have an ending exercise on this podcast. And something you said earlier, if it's okay with you, Natalie, I'm going to set it as an exercise for the listeners to do. And that okay. is to get a piece of paper and to write down your support network. Simple, but so powerful because it's very different doing a diagram representation of a thing than it is thinking about it in your head. So, yeah, that's as simple as it gets. I'd just like you to do that. Write down anyone. It doesn't have to just be work-related or training-related. It can be anything in your life, any organisations, help groups, support groups, anything, um, and just take a look at it. Because what you might find is that, you know, either you've got money more than you thought or you haven't got enough. And so that can be a good starting point as to try and fill the gaps or to try and seek some further support. If there's anyone listening who's really at the very early stage of this journey and they're either newly diagnosed with a chronic illness or they're kind of partly in not full acceptance that they've got a long term condition and they're struggling with this stuff, then therapy can be a really good place to go to try and work through some of the complex blocks and sort of psychological issues around this and the mental health impacts of this. So if that's something you can do, then, you know, I would highly recommend. I know we've both done that, but then that's kind of what we do in our profession anyway, isn't it? <laughs> like seeking that help. But if you, you know, that's something that I would recommend to people. So, yeah. So thank you so much, Natalie, for being guest on this episode. I've really enjoyed it. And I can't announce the next topic for the next episode because we don't quite know what it's going to be yet, but I think it's probably going to be another exciting guest episode. So look out for that one. Thank you for listening. We hoped you enjoyed this episode. How We Care is brought to you by Elizabeth Turk and Paul Gaunt via Simplecast. Case studies are generalised and do not relate to individual clients. Please subscribe for more episodes, rate us and follow us on Twitter, details in the show notes for information on upcoming episodes. Many thanks to Ed Tidy for the music and technical assistance. See you next time.